This is Euroscopic, a podcast brief about what happened this week, how we got here, and where we're going. I'm William Bluecroft. And this is Martin Guck. You can find this podcast and other essays at our Substack, euroscopic.substack.com. And of course, you can subscribe wherever your ears go for podcasts. Like, comment, share, you know the drill. If you like it, let us know and a friend or two of yours as well. This episode was recorded on Tuesday, the 15th of August, 2023. I'll do I actually that. don't, don't uh, really listen to anything while I'm cooking. I mean, it's just sort of a moment of zen, you know, it's just uh, hearing things, sort of the, 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 the beautiful sort of trill of the frying stuff. By the way, I had you over for donuts this Sunday. What do you think of the donuts? I think the donuts are the true breaking news story of 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 the week in Europe. Uh, we should have taken a photo to share with our Euroscopic audiences of us in real life. I actually have photos of the donuts. It's not you that have I photos of the donuts, but you don't have photos of us enjoying the donuts because we were having such a nice time in your apartment. I actually was thinking after you left because it really was a bit of uh, you know after my 20 years in the U.S. and now. 10 in Germany, it was really one of these full-fledged American morning experiences of sort of shooting the breeze, having some sort of very unhealthy sort of thing that you probably should have a snack of as a dessert, but starting the day with that, the taste of the donut is, was not quite in my mouth. It's like this sense that taste permeates everything. It's like the world that morning on Sunday morning was kind of getting to me through the donut, through this like sort of you know, this full experience. And this is something that I actually uh, kind of ha have seen uh, with displaced communities, finally enough. One of them, my grandparents, who, you know, my great grandparents actually uh, were, were Ukrainians and Moldovans, Jews that came to Argentina. And then, you know, we had all of these sort of food traditions. Uh, most sort of European ascended uh, uh, Argentinians, especially in Buenos Aires, actually do have that. That's why in, in the middle of summer for Christmas, we still eat very, very fatty foods that you would actually enjoy. Drinking. Excellent. Uh, but you have this also, I've seen it, you know, among Palestinian communities in which you have almost the land that they lost traveling with them in foods that they continue to prepare, even if those crops can no longer be obviously grown in many of the countries where they live. So there is something about you know, this experience of having donuts, the communion around donuts together Sunday morning, which really was to me quite, uh, quite great in all of this. And props Very to careful. your, I believe, I believe both your wife and your children decorated those. Yes. Uh, in fact, it was a request of my, my oldest kid uh, to have donuts on Saturday. And we just had the conversation away from the mother because she would, of course, would absolutely oppose. So she just walked into the kitchen to find uh, a very, very large amount of donuts. There are, I think, 24 donuts that we pulled out of three and a half cups of flour. Uh, and then he went on to spread different things of different colors on it, sort of like. You well, know. they were they were truly a work of art and very delicious. And how many donuts do you think you consumed, Martin? I had two, I think. I am fairly confident that over the weekend I had um, somewhere close to 10 donuts. Well, our bellies might be full of donuts, uh, but definitely something that is not full is the the media agenda. There's a massive, I think the whole of the donut is the media this week, which comes as no surprise because we are in the middle of August. 
Uh, and it's always just slow because anyone who is a newsmaker or a news teller is basically on vacation. Uh, and it really has no real interest in doing any real work, even if there are plenty of stories uh, to go around. And that's basically our big story this week, which is how there's no big story, despite there being stories to talk about. Uh, and of course, a big one is migration uh, at a number at a number of levels. Also, quick snippets on Russia and Niger, uh, von der Leyen on vacations. Of course, that uh, following the vacation topic that uh, von der Leyen was vacationing with Mitsuaki, she apparently accepted a private trip uh, to visit Mitsuaki's in Crete. Uh, and, you know, von der Leyen uh, is in a rather sticky position because, as a matter of fact, a lot of Mitsuaki's Nova Democracia, Nea Democracia in, in, in Greece has uh, really run a bit of a, of a collision course with European values and, you know, European institutions. Uh, had been particularly in Parliament, had been taking a close look about at Greece and sort of the treatment of the free press, uh, independent bodies. I mean, a lot of stuff that you would expect in considerably more right-wing governments, uh, including, you know, surveillance, illegal surveillance of of the opposition, and so on, have been happening in Greece, and there have been demands to actually investigate them investigate this particular Mitsuaki's government, which of course runs a bit contrary with the idea of like the top of the European Commission just going to hang out and drink Uso uh, in Crete with Mitsuaki's. I mean, it makes, you know, it makes you think that the only thing that Orban did wrong to the European Commission was not to actually extend an invitation to go drink, uh, you know, wine at Lake Balaton. So Niger is still actually in the news. I think it's still sort of the most underreported and perhaps one of the most important stories still sort of happening. Right. Uh, it's one of those stories. It's getting reported. It is in the news. People are waking up to the fact and they have over the last couple of weeks that uh, this is not some local far, local story far away. But there are major geopolitical issues here. Uh, I, of course, Russia warning uh, ECOWAS and ECOWAS really is just a stand in for Western powers since ECOWAS was kind of born out of the decolonialization or the, the post-colonial period, um, not to get involved. Of course, Russia is very much involved in, in those areas. My reading is that every time that Russian says that something is not the case, uh, for instance, participation in Niger or the presence in you know West Africa, or the fact that they were willing to invade Ukraine, or the fact that they were bombing like civilian targets, or the fact that they were behind murders in the UK, and so on and so forth. Every time that they deny something, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that's the final confirmation of the fact that that's they're doing. Yeah. Uh, so I think that the interesting thing about the Russians warning Echo was uh, was pretty much, uh, you know, don't come looking for us because because we're there. This is potential a hotspot for a confrontation between either Russian, Russian proxies, uh, or Russian, say, uh, friendly operators and uh, Western friendly operators, not only repeating some of the, the patterns of this, the, the Cold War, but probably more important, helping to divert assets from countries that at this point would like to really just be concentrating in, in Ukraine. Speaking of the Cold War, we saw that story this week or criticism this week about uh, how, how I won't say Russia friendly, but certainly lukewarm on supporting Ukraine, Austria is. Uh, Germany always gets the flack for this because Germany is just such a bigger country and a bigger player and a major arms exporter. But there are lots of other countries in the European Union that are not super hot on uh, towing the pro-Ukraine line. And I say Cold War because, of course, Vienna 
it was famous for being sort of this weird neutral city that was running just with spies of all kinds on both sides of the Iron Curtain would run amok. And Austria still very much in many formal and informal ways kind of carries over this sense of neutrality or the sense of not really taking sides and getting to fly under the radar because although it's a rich country and right in the center of Europe, it is a small country and often is able to get away with things that let's say a larger country like Germany can't. Austria very often looks like the, the Hungary that we can tolerate, uh, maybe because they eat schnitzels and they speak German and, you know, and so right. on. The so, Austro side of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so that is that is the one that is just closer to the to the Bavarian border. The fact is that, you know, even if you look at sort of the last couple of uh, the last couple of years, I mean, really 20 years of Austrian politics, they had also been dominated by either extremely reactionary forces like Haida was back back in the day, really one of the first uh, fully bloomed far right parties that that became part of the political fold. Uh, you might remember Karen Kissin, who was the foreign minister of the previous Austrian government. Uh, she was became famous, among other things, for dancing at her wedding with Putin, who came specially from Moscow to, uh, you know, uh, dance with her, it seems. Uh, all of it very, very strange. But the fact uh, there was a report going on uh, about a week and a half ago to two weeks ago that she actually had moved to Russia. You have a lot of political operators, a lot of politicians, some of them extremely prominent, like Schroeder himself, um, who have very cozy relations, are very much embedded in the Russian economy, are very much beneficiaries of the Russian political system and the Russian sort of oligarchic distribution of money, and that then they turn out to also have massive amounts of power uh, in their home countries. And I think if we take even a step further back or look look more broadly, beyond just the personal politics and the the, in, the personal relationships between various European figures and Russian figures, people conveniently like to forget how intertwined Russia, that, that even to say Russia and Europe as if they're two different entities, I mean, is kind of ridiculous. Russia is part of Europe, Europe is part of Russia. The very idea of cutting off Europe geographically from Asia is is fraught with all kinds of historical revisionism that you know, these are power players and elites who have been intertwined with each other for centuries, and those things don't just go away. Anyway, there is also today the story that uh, the EU will not negotiate with the UK a deal for returning migrants. The, the immigration policy in the UK is quite literally collapsing. Uh, Rishi Sunak has come into power kind of promising to stop the boats, as he put it. Uh, you know, the right does itself no favors beyond uh, elections of putting out these slogans that they cannot really amount to policy, obviously. Uh, <clears throat> but again, they did. Uh, and now, obviously, they cannot really stop votes at all. Uh, so they're hoping that the French or, or in Brussels, the European Union will get some sort of deal to return immigrants. Uh, the fact is that Brussels had quite simply said that they will not renegotiate that. They will not negotiate that. I mean, this is this is what you also get uh, as part of the, the Brexit deal. You know, the UK wants to treat the EU the way the EU treats a lot of countries on its periphery in terms of migrant returns, right? Send them back to Libya, send them back to Turkey, send them back to Tunisia, um, send them even back to Afghanistan, uh, wherever they may have come from. And I can imagine the EU, in the way it thinks of itself, in the high-minded way it thinks of itself, does not like being treated by the United Kingdom 
uh, as if it's uh, some developing country on its periphery. Uh, I found that rather that rather ironic. Which brings us to our main story of the week, which is both the media hole, the media silence on all sorts of stories, and particularly around the question of migration, which continues to be sort of an ongoing and rolling disaster. Uh, and the summer has obviously underscored uh, the necessity, both because of what we're just discussing, the British story, but because also the fact is that uh, sinkings and people disappearing is happening week to week. As a matter of fact, uh, since 2014 to the day, <clears throat> 30,000 people or thereabout have been calculated to have been uh, to have died uh, in the Mediterranean. Right, which is a stunning number, and it's even more stunning when you realize that's an undercount, right? Because there's no, I mean, there's so many bodies at the bottom of the Mediterranean that will never be found. Uh, so many families that will never be connected with their loved ones will never know what happened to to anybody that they might have known who've, who've set sail across the Mediterranean. And there just seems to be no end in sight to this. This just seems to be, it's almost not a news story because it's 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 almost as, it's almost like reporting there's oxygen in the atmosphere because it just it's just a constant situation. We know that huge boat uh, sinking off of the coast of Greece earlier this summer. I mean, just a few days ago, we had 33 people. I'm just looking at this right now. 33 confirmed dead and missing in one boat accident off the coast of Italy. That's just in, that's just a few days ago. I mean, just this week, you're looking at almost 100 dead people washing up on European shores. So the the, the system is just. It's it's just a, it is a humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, you have countries that, at least in the context of the 2015 crisis, were really quite solidarious with these people, uh, with people coming in. It's the fact that we are now in the face of uh, a really serious political destabilization uh, conjuncture or juncture, which could actually be massively exacerbated by another crisis uh, of migration. This, I think, part of the reason uh, why, you know, places like Tunisia, places like like Turkey and so on have taken such an important dimension in the policy, because many of these countries have come to understand that having sort of a massive influx of migration could really just push very strongly in the direction of the far right, as it has happened in Italy, as it has recently happened in Spain. We still don't know what will happen there, but, you know, I mean, they the far right anti-migration right has constituted a blog that has become politically relevant for a lot of central right parties. Media framing and political statements on one hand have to appeal to the humanity in people to portray people coming into Europe, people looking, you know, fleeing desperate circumstances as humans, right? Who are looking for a better life, who need a better life or need protection and safety. The problem is you end up the the the, the downside that unintended consequence, sometimes an intended consequence, but often an unintended consequence in the media framing is that you get a very two-dimensional understanding of who these people are. They just get turned into these uh, sort of touchy-feely, cuddly, uh, imaginary tokens uh, in the in the do-gooder imagination and not understood as people with trauma, people with fleeing horrific uh, war uh, scenarios. At people who might have severe psychological trauma, and that might come out in all kinds of dangerous and damaging ways for themselves and for the people around them. And so these people then come in uh, on a basis of solidarity, on a basis of goodwill, 
like like we saw in 2015. And then sure enough, of course, people are people. Within massive groups of, of, of people, like in a society, you have criminals, you have people who are psychologically disturbed, you have people who can't get jobs. You have all kinds of these normal issues, but because we haven't really had a nuanced picture of who these people are, that then opens up, uh, that's cannon fodder for the far right to talk about criminality, to talk about, you know, breakdown of welfare systems. Uh, and I've seen this actually coming from very, you know, well-established liberals, for instance, in France, or liberals in Southern Italy, which who, they will tell you, you know, I mean, I have been a long life socialist and I have fought for the protection of minorities, but I am actually facing sort of anti-white discrimination from Nigerians in Southern Italy, or I am, you know, sort of the stories in France are, are actually really considerably more, more extreme because the Muslim community tends to be much, much bigger and in some areas is completely dominant. You know, not only I think you have the problem that you just pointed to, which is that you have this sort of xenophilia, which is not better than xenophobia. You have the xenophilia that is not better than xenophobia, who also paints a tokenized sort of foreigner, which cannot actually then deal with the very serious and very concrete problems that the local population will have to deal with. And I think that what you end up with then is actually, first of all, what can be best described as a complete failure of integration, because in some sense, that is what it comes down to. But on the other hand, you have the dismissal of all these people with very serious concern as to how to negotiate this new demographies in their own homes. Uh, and you just treat them essentially as if they were, you know, just essentially Nazis. I mean, wearing brown and like doing the Roman salute in the streets in order to capture those or actually at least you have a fighting chance if you belong to the center left uh, or if you belong to the center for that matter with those populations, you need at least to be able to accept that these are things that need addressing. Right. Uh, this is something that I think the left has actually completely failed at. What what do you think is expecting is waiting for us in the week ahead? Well, there was the there was a this interesting story about uh, the Open Societies Institute looking to make a major restructure of its organization uh, after it kind of got basically kicked out or or fled Hungary, moved to Berlin. Now they basically want to get out of the EU, be and and instead in re, re, redirect their massive reforced resources. Is of course George Soros's. Uh, gang of liberal, speaking of liberal do-gooders, like a gang of liberal do-gooders, um, want to redirect their huge resources outside of, of the European Union, which I guess you can see makes sense because the European Union is a strong, rich place with strong institutions. Uh, and there might be other places in the world that need more help with their democracy, with uh, media, with media literacy, as we're, as we were just talking about. But still, the dangers, as, as, as we know, the dangers of the far right, the dangers of nativism, nativism of xenophobia, of, of, of democratic, of the, of the work of a democracy, are very much at risk in the European Union. So I would be interested to see how, not that, the, not that we need the OSI to save us, uh, but they are a major player in, in this nonprofit democracy field. It'll be interesting to see how they develop and what impact and what blowback and what the response might be from EU uh, leaders and other people in this space if they really do kind of get out of the EU work. From my corner, I mean, I'm still looking at Spain. There is now a bit of a wrangling uh, operation between the two parts of the, the left and the right of the Catalonians, of the Catalonian independentists, the UNS and the ERC. Uh, who are kind of at each other trying to decide what they will offer, uh, what they will ask from Sanchez in order to keep him in power and stop 
the right and the far right taking power. Um, and by and large, I mean, I'm waiting to see if people finally make it back to Brussels uh, and to Berlin from their vacation spots, Greece or, or Italy or, or wherever else. Uh, yeah, which happens every summer, of course. And, and, and for those reporters like you and me left here not vacationing, actually working, it's very difficult because I'm having the same issue where everyone's just on vacation. No one's around to talk to you, even if you do want to do even if you do want to do work. So I believe uh, next week's next week's top story for us might still be how there's no top story because uh, there's just this massive hole uh, in the in the news agenda. Although we'll see if there's any more decisions coming out of the out of the uh, the chancellery here in Germany about these these prize Taurus cruise missiles that are the next big ticket item that Ukraine wants uh, to follow up the British cruise missiles and I believe the French cruise missiles as well. Of course, my big question is, uh, how does an air force or how does a military that has almost no airplanes in its air force make use of an air launched weapon? Uh, nonetheless, that might be something for next week to keep an eye on. You've been listening to Euroscopic with William Bluecroft and Martin Gack, written by us, produced by us, and edited by me. If you liked what you heard, like us, subscribe to us, leave us a comment, tell us what you think, and share us with a friend. You can find us at Substack, that's euroscopic.substack.com, and our podcast, wherever podcasts are heard. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.